A 28-year-old woman is said to have walked into a private Christian school in Nashville today with two assault rifles and a handgun. The suspect is now dead, as are three adults and three children at the school. I have the latest on another mass shooting coming up on this Monday, March 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the MBTA has a new general manager. Governor Maura Healy announces her pick to run the transit system. Also, the question of what should happen to the remains of black bodies in a cemetery paved over and forgotten on Staten Island. And travel to the U.S. for performing artists could get more expensive under a proposal to double the cost of applying for a visa. Since the pandemic, things have gotten harder anyway. And this is adding like just another knife stab in the gut. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. More details are emerging about a shooting at a Nashville, Tennessee school. Alexis Marshall of Member Station WPLN reports seven people, including the person behind the attack, have been killed. Police say they received a call about the shooting at the Covenant School a little after 10 this morning. It's a private Christian school with students ranging from pre-K to sixth grade. Police say a 28-year-old woman entered through a side door with two assault-style rifles and a handgun and shot and killed three students and three adults. When police responded, they fatally shot her. Nashville's police chief says the woman is believed to have attended the school at some point. They have not released her name or the names of the victims. For NPR News, I'm Alexis Marshall in Nashville. Reaction a short time ago from President Biden. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart, ripping the soul of this nation, ripping at the very soul of the nation. He's urging congressional Republicans to support an assault weapons ban. Manhattan grand jury is hearing more evidence about hush money payments that could result in former President Donald Trump's indictment. He's accused of trying to prevent an affair he allegedly had with an adult film star from going public when he was running for office in 2016. Trump has repeatedly denied he had an intimate relationship with Stormy Daniels, and he continued to do so at an event over the weekend in Waco, Texas, where he staged the first rally of his 2024 presidential campaign. Trump's a target of multiple criminal investigations, which also include his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election he lost after one term in office and the role he played surrounding the 2021 deadly ride at the U.S. Capitol. He says the investigations into his conduct are conspiracies against him, but NPR's Domenico Montanero reports the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Mayor's Poll finds a majority of Americans feel differently. 56% in the survey say they see the investigations as fair, not a witch hunt as Trump and his allies claim. Three quarters of the more than 1,300 respondents also say they think Trump did at least something wrong. There's a split among Republicans, though. About half say Trump did something unethical but not illegal. The other half say he's done nothing wrong. It mirrors the split in the GOP primary right now with about half the party open to someone other than Trump, but a significant number locked in with Trump despite his glaring vulnerabilities. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Recovery underway from more than two dozen tornadoes that tore through portions of Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi last week in the community of Rolling Fork, Mississippi. Caroline Washington, an employee at Chuck's Dairy Bar, shared her ordeal. I was in the bathroom. I looked up. It was a truck uh, had landed on top of the bathroom. So I panicked a little bit and I uh, found my way out and I yelled for help and someone came over to help me. The storms killed at least 25 people. You're listening to 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA has a new boss. Governor Maura Healey announced today that Philip Ang will take over as the T's general manager next month. Ang has worked in transportation for nearly four decades. He's credited with turning around operations at the Long Island Railroad in New York, leading it to its best ever on-time performance. At a news conference in Newton this afternoon, Ang shared his desire to repair the T's problems. Being an engineer, so whenever I see problems, I have a need to solve it. I have a need to fix it. The status quo is not acceptable. And moving forward, we will be innovative, open to new ideas, and think of outside-of-the-box solutions. The MBTA's interim general manager, Jeff Gonneville, will remain at the T and assist with the transition. Meanwhile, shuttle buses will be used on the Orange Line between Wellington and North Station the next four nights for track work. The shuttles will run from 8.45 p.m. until the end of service each night, starting tonight and ending Thursday night. The Boston Marathon will have a new principal sponsor after this year's race. Bank of America is taking on the role. WBR's Alex Ashlock has more on today's news. Bank of America is based in Charlotte, but its New England headquarters are here in Boston's financial district. David Tyree is Bank of America's chief digital and marketing officer. He said the marathon pairs perfectly with the bank's mission. When we looked at what their core philosophies were, they matched Bank of America. Community, charities, the runners, the families. Those are all things that we think about each and every day. So that was it, that was it for Bank of America. The financial terms of the deal were not disclosed. It takes effect with the 2024 marathon. John Hancock has sponsored the race since 1986, but that agreement ends with next month's marathon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. And the marathon will be run three weeks from today. Beautiful day today. We've got some rain and even light snow coming up tonight, about 36 degrees for a low. Tomorrow could start up with a mix of snow and drizzle. Should be just plain rain by the afternoon. Chilly compared to today, only around the mid-40s tomorrow. Midweek should bring back the sunshine and milder temperatures could reach 50. 57 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. We are following the latest on a school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. Authorities say three children and three adults were killed this morning and that the alleged shooter, a 28-year-old woman, was killed by police. NPR's Joe Hernandez has been following this story and joins us now. Joe, what else are police there saying about what happened? Well, the first call came in at 10.13 a.m. local time for an active shooter at Covenant School. This is a private religious school actually on the campus of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, and it serves preschool age through sixth grade students. There's usually around 200 students and 40 staff members there. Um, Police say that during the course of the shooting, three students were killed and three staff members were killed as well. Nashville Police Chief John Drake says the parents of those children who were killed have all been notified. Right now, I will refrain from saying uh, the ages other than to say uh, I was literally moved to tears to see this and the kids as they were being ushered out of the building. 
No, when police arrived, two officers fatally shot the assailant, and that was at 10.27 a.m., less than 15 minutes after the first 911 call. A uh, spokesperson for the Metro Nashville PD says he wasn't aware of any other gunshot victims, but a police officer had a wound from cut glass, and now authorities were trying to reunite uh, children with their p- families. Hmm. And at this point, what more do we know about this alleged shooter? Police say it was a 28-year-old woman from Nashville, and they believe she was a former student of Covenant School. But uh, they haven't said anything about a motive, the reason why she might have carried this out. Um, And they're not saying much more about her identity. They did say that she entered the school through a side door. Here's Metro Nashville PD spokesperson Don Aaron about that. She entered the school through a side entrance and traversed her way from the first floor to the second floor, firing multiple shots. She was apparently also quite heavily armed. Um, Police said she had at least two assault rifles and one handgun. And Joe, I have to imagine we'll hear much more in terms of this country reckoning with another school shooting. But at this point, what has the local and national response been like? I mean, it's been a a huge outpouring of support, not only for the fact of the number of people who were killed, but also that it was children killed in a school. Nashville Mayor John Cooper said the city was joining the, quote, dreaded long list of communities that have suffered school shootings. And President Biden also made a statement on the shooting. He was at another event today and said it was heartbreaking and that the deaths of three children are a family's worst nightmare. And he called on Congress to do more to stop shootings. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart, ripping the soul of this nation, ripping at the very soul of the nation. And Biden again specifically called on Congress to pass his assault weapons ban. We'll keep following the story as there are more developments. NPR's Joe Hernandez, thank you. You're welcome. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he's delaying a vote in parliament on proposed changes to the court system. The proposal prompted widespread protests for months, and they intensified last night after Netanyahu fired his defense minister who spoke out against the plan. Today, labor strikes slowed service at hospitals and airports, and some military reservists skipped their duties. Protesters say the changes would put the courts under the control of Netanyahu's right-wing coalition. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Adrian. Daniel, uh, start by taking us through the dramatic events there today. Yeah, it was it was quite a day. Uh, I mean, all night long, protesters were blocking the main highway in Tel Aviv, the, the main metropolis in Israel. Uh, they were setting bonfires in the highway, and they were only cleared in the morning. And then, hours later, the country's main trade union announced a nationwide strike. So, as you mentioned, flights were grounded and delayed, and malls were closed, and e- even McDonald's closed in solidarity with the protesters. Mm-hmm. And the protesters uh, went to Jerusalem, surrounded the Israeli parliament, building and everyone was waiting to see would Netanyahu's coalition go ahead with their plan and actually hold a final vote on their controversial judicial overhaul that has sparked months of protests. It seemed like they actually would hold that vote, but then his coalition partners um, huddled and then called on their right-wing supporters to come to Jerusalem and demonstrate in favor of the judicial overhaul, and thousands did. And then at night, Netanyahu got on live TV and said he was postponing this controversial legislation for just a month to give a chance for dialogue with the opposition, and then he is going to bring it back uh, for a vote. 
okay, so postponing for just a month, but it doesn't sound like he's giving up on this proposal. What exactly are the changes he wants to make to the court system? That's right. He's not giving up. And, you know, the big picture is that he and his right-wing government think that the Supreme Court is too liberal and too powerful. So the main change that his government was pushing was to try to give the ruling coalition the power to actually select uh, some Supreme Court justices. They don't have that power now. And it's part of this larger effort that uh, Netanyahu wants to rebalance, in his, wor- in his words, to rebalance Israel's checks and balances, to give more power to elected officials and to take away uh, some of the, the independence of unelected judges. So on the surface, I mean, these sound like some pretty technical changes. Uh, why are people so opposed to these moves? You know, you have to understand that in Israel, there's no constitution. And the court, the Supreme Court, is really the protector of individual rights and minority rights. And so protesters have been saying that uh, these changes, if the government has power to select Supreme Court justices, it could tip the balance of the court. It could be a first step for this right-wing ultranationalist religious coalition to to try to pass their their main agenda, which is passing laws that uh, they want to, in the protesters' eyes, infringe on on secular Israelis' rights, on LGBTQ rights, and even rights for Palestinians. Well, you've been talking with people, uh, protesters, on both sides of this debate. What have they been telling you? Well, it was a really, really stormy day. And, you know, there were protesters uh, against this reform in the streets with Israeli flags. And now that Netanyahu has suspended the government, the, the, the legislation, uh, the protest organizers are saying democracy is still in danger. They are not calling off protests. They're uh, they vowing to continue. But the, the main trade union has called off uh, the main nationwide strike. We're going to see if all these uh, these moves and if Netanyahu's freezing and suspension of the legislation will actually bring calm back to the country. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Daniel. You're welcome. People in the small farming community of Rolling Fork, Mississippi, are mourning and cleaning up following the devastating storms and tornado that killed at least 26 people in the region on Friday night. Maya Miller from the Gulf States newsroom visited with parishioners of a nearly 100-year-old church that collapsed as they looked for things to salvage from the wreckage. As you drive into Rolling Fork, you'll notice most of the trees here lean northward after a tornado battered the area, ripping homes apart and sending pickup trucks hurtling through the air. There are bricks from people's homes scattered across town. As you've seen in Rolling Fork, there's hardly a tree left standing. Father Greg Proctor is an Episcopal priest at Chapel of the Cross Church in Rolling Fork. Chapel of the Cross was one year shy of celebrating 100 years in this red brick building, but now more than half of the church has been destroyed. There was a bell tower that went three stories up in the air with big cast iron or brass bell. It's in the wreckage. We hope to be able to save it. The bell tower collapsed onto the pews, barely missing the altar. On Sunday, instead of having services, nearly a dozen men sort through the wreckage, salvaging silver and panels of stained glass. Some are members of his congregation, but others, Proctor says, are from out of town. They just showed up with plywood and and some hands. Proctor has a small congregation, and his parishioners have questions. But for now, they want to be useful, for which he's grateful. Commandment to love God and love your neighbor have been shown 
this, uh, these last few days as, as people have come together to help. One person who's here to help is William Moore, a lifelong member of Chapel of the Cross. He's attended for more than 60 years. I'm devastated. Uh, it's a small congregation, and I've been the treasurer for 40 years. <laughs> so it's, it's, my, it's my life. As he looks at the damage, he takes a deep breath and struggles to keep talking. It was probably the prettiest church in the county, uh, and it's gone. So, yeah, it's sad. To deal with the loss, Moore's instinct is to be here to help. And he's not the only one. There are utility trucks, construction equipment, and emergency vehicles all over town trying to piece Rolling Fork back together. And Moore says he's here for the long haul, too. You've been here helping out and navigating all of this. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, as long as it takes. Mm -hmm. This is my church. For now... Father Proctor says they're coming up with a plan to get Sunday services going again. Well, we may not be in this building anymore. It's hard to say for sure. But uh, we will have a worship space and we will gather to praise God's grace. He hopes next Sunday will be that day. For NPR News, I'm Maya Miller in Rolling Fork, Mississippi. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, a new poll shows that the majority of Americans think the investigations into former President Trump are fair. 60% say they don't want him to be president again. That story is still ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's School of Theology, presenting the acclaimed novelist Marilyn Robinson, April 11th at 6.30 p.m. in the Photonics Building. Admission is free. Reservations are required at robinsonbu.eventbrite.com. On Wall Street, the Dow and S&P both picked up territory to start the week. The Dow rose six-tenths of a percent. S&P was up 0.16 percent. The Nasdaq ended the day on the losing side, though. It was down about a half percent. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. The largest ground fish operation in New England is shutting down its processing plant in New Bedford. Blue Harvest Fisheries says it'll invest its resources instead on upgrading its fishing boats. The company will lay off 64 employees in May as part of the plant closure. Blue Harvest has permits to bring in some 46 million pounds of seafood per year, including haddock, Atlantic cod, and ocean perch. It's 419. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
Such a lovely spring day today. We have some rain and even light snow on the way overnight tonight. Should be about 36 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, some rain, a drizzle in the morning, then just plain rain by the afternoon. Chilly compared to today, only about the mid-40s. We should see the sunshine return, though, on Wednesday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Juana Summers. Eight counties in California will launch an experiment this fall aiming to fix a seemingly intractable problem, how to get treatment for people with the most serious mental health challenges, many of whom wind up homeless and with drug or alcohol use disorders. Too often, they end up cycling in and out of police holds, jail, or emergency rooms and don't get help. But under these care courts, a judge will be able to order mental health treatments and other support under a care plan that counties have to fund. As NPR's Eric Westervelt reports, the rollout is being met with both praise and fierce opposition. In Diana and Lauren Burdick's home in suburban Rancho Cordova, east of Sacramento, five parents are talking about their kids over a lunch of curried chicken, potato chips, and fruit salad. Her hair is finally growing oh, out. Oh, yeah, that's, that's better than the last time I saw her. This ordinary lunch with friends is also a vital support group. Every parent here has an adult child with a severe mental illness, a son or daughter who's also struggled with homelessness, substance abuse, and arrests. Using her phone, Diana shows a picture of her son, Michael, who's lived on the streets since 2014. That's pretty much what he looks like right now. Oh, my gosh. See, anybody looking at him would say, that's not right. He doesn't feel good. Yeah. This is a couple days ago. Diana says her son, now 49, used to play guitar in a band, loved to draw elaborate pen and ink landscapes, and worked for a time as an electrician's apprentice. But for a very long time now, her son's been gripped by delusions and paranoia, she says, and frequently self-medicates with street narcotics, mostly methamphetamine. Diana was recently turned down when she tried to get Michael into the county's assisted outpatient treatment program because he's never been diagnosed. He doesn't want any help, Diana says, because Michael refuses to think of himself as ill at all. In fact, he thinks that he owns Ikea and that I have a trust fund with Bill Clinton and that I should be giving him monthly checks. And that's why he refuses to get care, because he does not believe anything's wrong with him and that if I would just give him that money, he would be fine. Diana has no idea where he sleeps. Most every day, though, she drops off food for him at a nearby store. We're just kind of waiting for him to get arrested again for something, she says, that might push him into care. As Michael's stepdad, Lauren, puts it, unless they can put pressure on him, Michael is very likely to stay on the streets ill, drug-addled, and lost. Well, we can kind of look at it. He's in that dark hole right now. And if you can force treatment on him, there's a chance he could possibly crawl out of it. But 
without some way to force him to do something, he won't do it. It's exactly this mix that California's care courts, which launch in eight counties this fall, aim to address. People suffering with untreated severe mental illness, mostly schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. The kind of folks who too often also end up homeless, addicted, and incarcerated. Under care court, a wide range of people, parents, friends, clinicians, and first responders, can petition the court that a person needs help. If the judge agrees, he or she can order a care plan that counties must fund. The plans would be individualized, but would likely include clinical treatment, bridge housing, and other support. As the state's Health and Human Services Department puts it, the goal is to give the ill person the tools they need to make self-directed choices to the greatest extent possible. But it's that kind of language that some advocates say shows the program is really coercion masquerading as care. Care court, as it's written right now, is unconstitutionally vague and it violates the civil rights of our clients with mental health disabilities who are homeless. Christian Abasto is legal director of Disability Rights California. They're part of a coalition that is sued to stop the program and to get clarity, especially about what will happen to people who fail to follow through on their court-ordered treatment plans. Californians are so fed up with homelessness, it's home to nearly one-third of the nation's homeless, that Abasto worries the program will end up pushing many people into involuntary treatment, what he sees as a backdoor attempt to expand conservatorship, where ill people risk losing self-determination. It empowers parents, police, school persons to basically make an accusation and, and invoke the court system with potential confinement and potential infringement of the civil rights of people with mental health disabilities when they have done nothing wrong. Instead of funding new courts, the coalition wants the state to dramatically boost funding for existing treatment and housing for homeless persons with severe mental illness. Proponents, including the governor, counter that any potential penalties for not complying with a care plan are being wildly exaggerated. The program hasn't even gotten off the ground. I think it's terribly frustrating and heartbreaking for a lot of these families. Dr. Lisa Wong is director of Los Angeles County's Department of Mental Health, the largest county launching a care court pilot. L.A. and other counties going first stress that outreach by social workers will be key to getting people to participate voluntarily so they don't end up in court. But even if a case does, Dr. Wong says, it's still a voluntary service. You know, we're not holding people against their will. There's no involuntary medication order or anything like that. So people still have the ability to say no. And many parents, including Diana Burdick, say the care court experiment will surely be better than watching their loved ones cycle endlessly between crisis police holds, emergency rooms, jails, and homeless shelters. What we're doing now is telling my son it's okay to kill himself. He can stay on the streets and he can die there, but he's going to die with his rights. The only rights I have as a mother is to go claim him in the morgue. Diana says sometimes when she drops off food or clothes to Michael, a light seems to turn on and he calls her mom. But much of the time, she says, she's just Diana, who controls that imaginary trust fund with Bill Clinton, and she has to just drive away. So after a while, you kind of have to laugh about it, but then you cry about it because it's such a sad waste of our emotions, our time, and his life. He, he doesn't, what kind of a life does he have? You know, and when you put yourself in those, in, in those shoes, then it's very hard to, to function and to, uh, well, to sleep. 
Maybe with care court, her son will finally get a diagnosis and the medical help she's been trying to get for him for so long. There isn't anything that I've been able to do. I mean, I've got a book here on all and all these that uh, notes that I have taken and time that I have taken to try to help him. And this is the first time that now I feel like I, I'm hopeful. Hopeful for her own son and that there's a chance, she says, to save other families from going through some of the pain we have. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Sacramento. The next few nights, five planets will line up in the sky. Astronomer Erica Grundstrom of Vanderbilt University told us to look to the western horizon just after sunset. And if you can find Jupiter, which will be quite bright, you'll be able to find Mercury, but you might need binoculars. Keep scanning up to find Venus. It's brighter than anything in the sky besides the sun and the moon. And right next to Venus you can see Uranus, and it will look slightly greenish. That's one of the awesome things about Uranus. You might need binoculars for that one, too. Then above that, the crescent moon and orangish Mars. Grunstrom pointed out there's no cosmic significance to all this. One of my friends likened it to looking at a car's odometer and seeing that they're all fours, they're all fives. Chance to marvel at our neighboring worlds. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR at the National Zoo in Washington. When the rare Siberian tigers proved to be just friends, the zoo turned to artificial insemination in hopes of creating the next generation. The results are coming up. In sports, Bruins and Celts both have the night off tonight. Red Sox bats were fairly quiet today at spring training. Boston lost its matinee with the Atlanta Braves 6-1. to The Sox final game of spring training is tomorrow afternoon, once more against the Braves. Today, the team also sent first baseman Bobby Dahlbeck to AAA Worcester. The move opens up a roster spot for infielder Yu Chang. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Nashville, Tennessee, authorities say three children and three adults were killed at a private Christian school today by a 28-year-old woman, possibly a former student. The shooter was killed by police during the confrontation. Police say she was armed with two assault-style rifles and a pistol. Here's Nashville Police Chief John Drake. We have identified the suspect right now, uh, tentatively a 28-year-old female white. Uh, we know the address of that person as well, and so we have some ongoing investigations um, as to that. The shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville comes as communities around the nation are still reeling from a spate of school violence. Today, President Biden once again called on Congress to pass his assault weapons ban. 
Ukraine's president continued his tour of frontline regions today, meeting with troops in the southeastern portion of that country. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley tells us he also talked about the increasingly difficult situation around the operation of nuclear plants now controlled by Russia. Zelensky has been on the move since Ukraine's top general announced a counteroffensive against Russia could start soon. Zelensky visited the Donbass last week and handed out medals near the city of Bakhmut, where fighting has raged for the last eight months. He also visited officials and residents in the southern region of Kherson, where Ukraine pushed back Russian troops last November after months of occupation. Meanwhile, International Atomic Energy Agency head Rafael Grossi met with Zelensky. The two inspected a major hydroelectric power plant that's part of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant safety system. The Zaporizhia plant has been occupied by Russian forces for the last year. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street to start the week as a deal for Silicon Valley Bank pushed the financial sector higher. The Dow up about six-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The former president of Long Island Commuter Rail System will be its, the new head of the MBTA. Governor Maura Healey named Philip Ang to the position today. Ang led the Long Island Railroad from 2018 to early last year. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston she's excited about the appointment. Mr. Ang looks like from his um, professional experience, from the approach that he has to the work, from the many decades that he has served in systems just like this or even bigger, I'm really thrilled. And we're ready to partner uh, from the city side wherever we can, because this is a moment where we need to go all in and turn things around. Philip Ang says under his leadership, the T will be innovative in finding solutions. He officially takes the helm next month. Interim GM Jeff Gonneville will stay with the T to help the transition. A second year of seasonal MBTA ferry service between East Boston and downtown got underway today. Scott Greenwald has lived in East Boston for four years. He says he took the ferry today to go into the city for coffee. He usually takes the blue line. This is much more pleasant because I love being on the water and it's a beautiful sunny day, so it's an option and I appreciate taking it. Morgan Darby also lives in East Boston and works at the Financial District. About a five-minute walk from the wharf, so it's perfect for me and it's a lot more beautiful than the train. Ferries will soon be waived for people with Charlie cards on the East Boston Ferry while speed restrictions are in place on the Blue Line. The average statewide price of gasoline in Massachusetts has dropped slightly in the past week. The latest AAA Northeast survey puts the average at 3.25 a gallon. That's two cents a gallon lower than a week ago and a dollar a gallon below what it was this time last year. The average price in Boston is 3.26 a gallon. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. To elevate your impact in a changing world, bc.edu slash msae. Looks like the sun's just about had it for the day today. Clouds have moved in, should spend the night tonight and return tomorrow. Lows tonight in the mid-30s, tomorrow's highs in the mid-40s. Should be gray and rainy tomorrow, maybe some snow flurries in the morning. 55 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. 
indeed.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. At a weekend rally in Waco, Texas, former President Trump blasted the multiple criminal investigations into his conduct as biased conspiracies. But this is really prosecutorial misconduct. That's what it's called. The innocence of people makes no difference whatsoever to these radical left maniacs. But a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds most Americans disagree with that, and they say investigations are fair. To break down the numbers, let's bring in NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. And Domenico, how did the questions about these Trump investigations all break down? Well, 56% said that the investigations are fair. Uh, We saw some pretty familiar splits by party, place, and education. Nine in 10 Democrats say they're fair. Eight in 10 Republicans call them a witch hunt. Independents are split, but lean toward calling them fair. Okay, and what does that tell us about how people view the former president's conduct? Well, most people, three quarters actually, think Trump did at least something wrong. Uh, 46% say he did something illegal. 29% say he did something unethical but not illegal. A quarter say he did nothing wrong at all. But the most eye-opening split here was with Republicans. 45% say he did nothing wrong. 43%, meanwhile, think that he did something unethical. And that's pretty close to the divide in the GOP primary that we've been seeing, where about half the party is open to someone other than Trump, but half appear pretty locked in for him. All right. And because you mentioned the primary, I do have to ask you, does this poll give us any other clues on Trump's standing with rank and file Republican voters as compared to, say, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who I should note is not yet officially a candidate for president, though most people do expect that he's going to run? Yeah, that's right. You know, the survey really found that Trump remains very popular with Republican voters. Eight in 10 have a favorable opinion of him. Three quarters of Republicans actually want him to be president again, even though 61% of people overall don't want that to happen. That includes two thirds of independents who say no. It's tough to win a general election with those kinds of numbers, but it's also hard to see how he loses a primary with the depth of support that he has among Republicans. You know, that's going to make it tough for someone like DeSantis to distinguish himself. And we haven't seen DeSantis be able to take Trump down a few pegs, something he's going to have to do if he ultimately runs and wants to win the nomination. But we've seen him struggle recently. Yeah, let's talk more about that. DeSantis now seems to be a little defensive about his stance on Russia and Ukraine. Right. Yeah, he's really shifted on this. Earlier this month, he dismissed the war in Ukraine as a, quote, territorial dispute. But in an interview with Piers Morgan, he called Russia's Vladimir Putin a, quote, war criminal. And he addressed his territorial dispute comments this way. The, the thing with territory is just that's where the fighting was. You know, there's not this fighting on the on the on the Western side. And you have situations where there's ethnic Russians there and it's just it's it's a it's a messy situation. Mm. But Russia did not have a right to go in to Crimea or to go in in, in February of 2022. And, and that's that should be clear. Clearly, he wanted to make that clear. And that's DeSantis there trying hard to get back on the right side of many of his donors and allies who've been concerned about his falling poll numbers of late. You know, these are more traditional Wall Street Journal GOP types who don't agree with Trump's more populist America first policy agenda. And as governor of Florida, this really hasn't been a thing that we've had to see DeSantis Mm -hmm. talk about or make his mark on. But as president, he'd have to. And what his worldview is, is still to be determined. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome.
Traveling to the U.S. could get more expensive for some folks later this year. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has proposed raising the cost of visa applications by some 250 percent. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiolkas says while these fee hikes would affect sectors from tech to agriculture, musicians have been among the loudest critics. Much of the performing arts business was already in a defensive crouch when U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services announced a proposal earlier this year to more than double fees for visa applications. Between the pandemic, the rocky economy, and profit margins that were already often razor thin, this was just one more hurdle, says Tom Frusch. It's a really crazy situation since the pandemic. Things have gotten harder anyway. And this is adding like just another little like knife stab in the gut, you know. Fruge is the executive director of Avocado Artists in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They present events such as the annual Global Kirky Festival, which draws musicians from all over the world. He's not worried about the likes of Harry Styles or Dua Lipa suddenly not being able to afford U.S. tours. He's worried about musicians with less name recognition. Frankly, touring costs have gone up in general, but presenter budgets have not gone up. It's not like presenters are getting more money because prices have gone up. And with touring prices already going up and affecting even mid-level known artists, imagine the effect on an artist coming from Malawi or Vietnam. Artists like Malawi's Madalizo Band, whom Fruge had scheduled to appear at last year's edition of Global Kirky. But the duo's visas did not arrive on time, and they were forced to cancel their first U.S. tour altogether. USCIS is also proposing an increase in the number of applications that would have to be filed. For example, a big orchestra or ballet company currently files only one application on behalf of all of its members and staff on tour. Under the increase, you'd have to file one for every 25 people in the group. So an orchestra of 100 musicians plus some staffers would be required to file five separate petitions under the new rules, and those fees will rack up fast. For our hypothetical orchestra, those increased USCIS fees would skyrocket from $460 to over $8,000. These changes would affect organizations across the spectrum, from high-profile institutions that welcome foreign artists throughout their seasons to smaller local presenters. The problem also goes to scale. So with multiple artists engaged, for instance, in a local arts festival, this fee could make the difference in being able to afford to present those artists or not. That's Heather Noonan. She's the vice president for advocacy with the League of American Orchestras. The League is one of the groups asking USCIS to reconsider the price hikes. NPR reached out to USCIS for comment. The agency referred us back to their written statement announcing the proposed increases. Tom Fruge in Albuquerque says his city is lucky to have many wonderful local artists from different communities that he can present. But there's another element at play here, the soft diplomacy that happens when American audiences encounter artists from cultures very different than their own. We contextualize the artists we bring, including educational outreach. We have a robust school program, and we are in a state, one of the poorest states in the union, that would not otherwise have the opportunity to experience these different cultures from around the world. 
A period for public comment on the proposed increases closed earlier this month. USCIS received over 6,000 comments, most of them objecting to USCIS's plans. Nevertheless, the proposed changes could go into effect later this year. Anastasia Tsoulikas, NPR News, New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Amur tigers, also known as Siberian tigers, are the largest cats in the world. They are also endangered. Fewer than 500 of them roam the mountains of eastern Russia. But at the Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington, D.C., zookeepers are trying to help two Amur tigers reproduce using artificial insemination. From member station WAMU, Jacob Fenston has the story. All right, last big breath. And then I'll take machine. Alyssa, you'll take her head and her tube, please. In the cavernous bunker-like concrete hallways beneath the lion and tiger habitats, a muscular 300-pound cat appears to be sleeping. She has thick orange and black fur, and her paws are as big as salad plates. A couple dozen National Zoo staffers are gathered in close. I'm Jane Hutchison. I'm a certified veterinary technician here at Smithsonian's National Zoo. And I am breathing for our tiger right now. She is under anesthesia, so we have our portable anesthesia machine here. Nikita is 11 years old, and big cat curator Craig Sappho says she's never had cubs before. We've been trying to breed Nikita with no success. So once we don't have success with natural breeding, we look to our scientists to help us with the artificial insemination, um, all a part of trying to keep the species going. Getting big cats to breed in captivity is not easy. For one thing, the animals are naturally aggressive with each other. Mating can be violent. We often think that, well, you just put two tigers together. Well, try that with humans. That doesn't, doesn't always work out so well. This male, they get along, but it's, it's effectively a platonic relationship. They get together, they head rub, but they just won't pull the trigger. They just won't breed. Across North America, zoos try to help endangered animals by selectively breeding them, keeping up genetically diverse populations. It's a sort of insurance policy in case disaster strikes the wild populations. Zoos even rank individual animals based on how genetically valuable they are. Nikita is number five among Amur tigers. I am ready with the head. Okay. One, two, three. It takes ten people to lift the cat. Carry her onto a cart. I'm gonna reconnect her and give her a couple of breaths. It's like in a hospital, that same mix of frenetic activity and choreographed precision. Reproductive physiologist Pierre Comazzoli uses an endoscope, a tiny camera inside the tiger. So you see, I am in the cervix now. So he's carefully looking to place the sperm at exactly the right spot. This is the exciting part. So it went straight into the into the uterus. Or probably into the one of the uterine haunts because the uterine body is very small okay. in those cats. It looks good. So the actual insemination took place. So far, artificial insemination has rarely been successful with these tigers. I would say that the Siberian tiger is the largest uh, of the, the wild cats, and uh, it's always uh, you know very impressive and <laughs> very different from a cheetah or a leopard. You still want her on one, Alyssa? Yeah, just her a couple big breaths and it's fine. Now we need to return the animal as safely as possible back to her enclosure. And then we just keep our fingers crossed and we hope for the best. Keepers at the National Zoo say they should know by early May if Nikita is expecting tiger cubs. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Fenston. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered, the latest mass shooting in the U.S. It happened today at a small Christian school in Nashville. What we know so far, coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Red Sox have only one more game in spring training before they head back to Boston for the regular season to begin Thursday. Tomorrow they play the Atlanta Braves. Today they took on the Braves as well and lost definitively 6-1. to one. In the forecast, looks like we've got clouds for the night tonight and they should return tomorrow. Overnight lows just about the mid-30s could have some snow and some rain, but nothing accumulating in terms of snow on the ground overnight tonight. For tomorrow, lots of rain, maybe just a few snow flurries during in the morning hours. This is WBUR. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, presenting a talk with Dr. Larry Brilliant, who helped end smallpox as a hippie doctor and whose visionary ideas have changed the world. Free to the public. Memorial Church in Cambridge on March 29th at 4. Details at wcfia.harvard.edu. I'm Leila Faldin. We've learned that we can't take our democracy for granted. Journalism in the public interest, journalism that is the heart of WBUR, keeps democracy thriving. Member dollars give WBUR the time to pursue stories that can take months of investigation. These stories often reveal uncomfortable truths, truths that can lead to meaningful change. It all starts with member dollars. Not a member yet? Give today at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Adrian Florido. New York outlawed slavery in 1827, several decades before Congress abolished it federally. But across the state, there are burial sites containing the remains of enslaved people. Many of the grave sites are now in severe disrepair. WNYC reporter Arun Venugopal has the story of one such site on Staten Island. Ruth Ann Hills is African-American and resides on Staten Island. She took pride in thinking that for centuries, her family had lived in the area freely. My family's been on Staten Island since like the late 1700s, early 1800s. My grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, you know. Then a filmmaker who'd been conducting genealogical research for a documentary told Hills and her brother David about Benjamin Prime. Prine died in 1900 at the age of 106. He built fortifications during the War of 1812. He was the last person known to have been born into slavery on Staten Island. Hills and her brother had never heard of him, but it turns out he was their great-great-great-grandfather. You know, I'm in my 70s, and I thought I was, you know, like, you know about slavery, but slavery happened down south. Prine was owned by a highly influential New Yorker, a minister by the name of Peter Van Pelt. Hills and her brother now share a house built by their grandfather on Van Pelt Avenue. The street is named for the white family that enslaved their ancestor. Prine's body was buried just a mile away, but the filmmaker told him that the burial ground had long ago been sold. Today, it's a strip mall. Every day for years and years and years and years, they were just walked over and desecrated. Hill's brother, David Thomas, who's 65. That's just, that's a sin to me. 
it's, that's shameful. The city council is now set to co-name the street that runs along the burial ground Benjamin Prine Way. And one of the commercial tenants at the site, Santander Bank, wants to mount a plaque about its history. But Hills and her brother want more. They say the remains of everyone buried here must be reburied in a proper cemetery. And they want reparations. I'm not talking about millions of dollars, but something for my family. That's it. Heather Quinlan is the filmmaker. The documentary she's producing is called Staten Island Graveyard. We met in the strip mall's parking lot. Yeah, this is the uh, notorious dumpster where I believe there are remains under here. Anywhere from 90 to 1,000 bodies, she said. Usually there's people either dumpster diving or urinating or treating it as their own personal trash bin. Watch where you step. Oh, yeah. For real. It was clear that people had defecated here, too. It's filthy. Quinlan says the deterioration of the cemetery began in the 1800s. Headstones disappeared. The adjoining church, the second Asbury AME, was torn down. In the mid-1900s, the city ultimately seized the site and auctioned it off. The new owner built a shell gas station. The history of African-Americans have been erased here on Staten Island. That's Debbie Ann Page, a black historian on Staten Island. She says the city knowingly approved commercial development atop a burial ground filled with black New Yorkers. She compared the erasure of burial sites to the erasure of history in American textbooks. The history is the glue that keeps the community together. The most prominent site holding the remains of formerly enslaved Americans is the African burial ground in Lower Manhattan. Peggy King Yorda oversaw the reclamation of that site in the 1990s. She's now helping envision a memorial on Staten Island. Anthropologists or archaeologists say that what in part defines us as human is how we bury our dead. For enslaved people, the act of burial serves an additional purpose. The community in that fact is reclaiming the humanity of that individual, of that brother, that sister, that mother, that father. And in that moment, if you can imagine doing that, what you are engaging in is a revolutionary act. And in this process, she says, the ground becomes sacred, which is why it's critical to preserve the story and the sanctity of these sites. For NPR News, I'm Arun Vanagopal in New York. Forty years ago, Billy Joel's hit song Allentown fell off the charts after almost five months on the Billboard 100, and it left a legacy. The city of Allentown, Pennsylvania, became a symbol of the Rust Belt and economic hardship. And yet, a lot of the people who live there say Billy Joel's song did not exactly help. Julian Abraham reports. It's one of those songs that you can recognize right away. It starts with a steam whistle. Then come the sounds of a hard day's work at a steel mill. It tells the story of Allentown, Pennsylvania, a symbol of the American Rust Belt. The 
the boom and bust of the area's steelwork that made much of the country's biggest landmarks until its sudden collapse in the 80s and the lives that were never the same when their stable jobs were taken away. The song is mainly about Bethlehem Steel, a nearby steel factory that used to be one of the biggest in the world. At its peak, it employed over 30,000 people. Guillermo Lopez worked there for almost 30 years. Then, like everyone else at Bethlehem Steel, he was laid off, but he still likes the song. The mood, the sounds of steam, of the clanging and the machinery. It just puts, puts you right back in the steel mill if you work here. Allentown's mayor, Matt Turk, was only seven when the song came out. He recently had a birthday. His staff serenaded him with a sing-along to a song he hates. While singing, Mayor Turk couldn't help but throw in some ad-libs defending his city. And it's getting very hard to stay. No, it's not. <laughs> It's so wrong. It's like, I don't know how it felt in 1982, but it doesn't feel like that now. Like, I honestly have a hard time saying it's getting hard to stay. Like, it's not hard to stay. It's hard to leave. The mayor's main criticism? He says the song paints the city in a negative light and made it a symbol of industrial decay. The woman you heard on the piano, Laura Ballot-Cole, is the manager of civic innovation for the city of Allentown. The song itself is righteous. It's a great song. It's a, it's a banger. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't actually, it's not about Allentown. Even Billy Joel agreed when the song came out back in 1982, it's not about Allentown specifically, but a state of mind. We're not moving out or giving up, he said. We're going to try. For NPR News, I'm Julian Abraham in Allentown. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from EBSCO, committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant online research databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. More at EBSCO.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up overnight tonight, look for rain, maybe some light snow, about 36 degrees for a low. Tomorrow could start up with a mix of snow and drizzle. Should be just plain rain by the afternoon. Chilly compared to today, about the mid-40s. Midweek should bring back the sunshine and milder temperatures could reach just about 50 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 51 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. 
Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Police say the woman who opened fire in a Christian school in Nashville today may have been a former student. The shooter was heavily armed and is believed to have fatally shot three children and three staff members. She was later shot and killed by police. Our story is coming up on this Monday, March 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Supreme Court has heard arguments today in a case about unlawful immigration. It asks whether a federal law that prohibits inducing immigration for financial gain violates the First Amendment. You've chosen to read a statute that criminalizes words. Shouldn't we be careful before we uphold that kind of statute? Also, how deforestation causes drought and a change at the Boston Marathon. Race organizers announce a deal with a new principal sponsor. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The death toll in a Nashville school shooting stands at 7. Police who responded to the scene killed the shooter, identified as a 28-year-old female. Police say she had two assault rifles and at least one pistol when she opened fire at the Covenant School. Three children and three adults died. President Biden is calling again for an assault weapons ban. NPR's Tamara Keith reports. President Biden finds himself once again offering condolences after a mass shooting. It's sick. You know, we're still gathering the facts of what happened and why. And we do know that as of now, there are a number of people who are not going to, did not make it, including children. Biden signed bipartisan gun safety legislation last year after the Uvalde shooting, but he says it didn't go far enough. So I call on Congress again to pass my assault weapons ban. It's about time that we began to make some more progress. The last assault weapons ban expired back in 2004, and with most Republicans opposed, there hasn't been the political will in Congress to revive it. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Facing three months of intensifying protests, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is postponing a proposal to weaken the independence of the Israeli courts. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. In a live televised speech, Netanyahu says he is suspending a vote to pass his judicial overhaul for one month to allow for dialogue with the opposition to reach a wide consensus before the parliament comes back from spring recess April 30th. Netanyahu's coalition wants the decisive vote in appointing some Supreme Court justices, a move that legal experts and protesters say would give the government effective control over the court. Netanyahu's decision to postpone the vote came after he fired his defense minister who had objected to the plan, and as much of the country was paralyzed in workers' strikes and street protests. Protest organizers say they will continue to protest in the streets until the parliament firmly rejects the judicial overhaul. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee wants to try her hand at running the city of Houston. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports. Sheila Jackson Lee is one of the most senior Texans in Congress. She made her announcement at City Cathedral Church in the Woodlands. I hope I've been a humble servant for you for 28 years, many of you in my district. Sheila Jackson Lee wants to come home to be your mayor for the city of Houston. Seven Democrats are running for mayor in the officially nonpartisan November election. Jackson Lee's most formidable competitor is Democratic State Senator John Whitmire, who has represented Houston in the Texas legislature for 50 years. 
I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 194 points. The Nasdaq lost 55. The S&P was up six. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. The former president of the Long Island commuter rail system will be the new head of the MBTA. Governor Maura Healey named Philip Eng to the position today. She formally introduced him at a press conference this afternoon. What really stood out to all of us in the search process is that he has a proven track record of taking on challenging problems, taking over the reins of transit systems in times of crises, and turning them around. Ang led the Long Island Railroad from 2018 to early last year. He officially takes over the T on April 10th. Interim MBTA General Manager Jeff Gonneville says uh, we'll stay at the T and help with the transition. Some members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are praising Ang's appointment. Congressman Seth Moulton calls it a promising signal for the T in the state. He says Ang understands the technical complexities of municipal and regional rail systems. Senator Elizabeth Warren commends the governor for hiring a general manager with a demonstrated record of significantly improving transit systems. Starting next year, the Boston Marathon will have a new principal sponsor. Race organizers announced today that Bank of America will succeed John Hancock after next month's marathon. John Hancock has sponsored the race since 1986. Boston Athletic Association president and CEO Jack Fleming says he's looking forward to the new partnership. Not only for the Boston Marathon, all of our events, all of our programming, we will find new ways to celebrate and to have pathways into our sport of running. The new agreement will run for 10 years. Financial terms were not disclosed. And state lawmakers are giving more time to efforts to change the Massachusetts state seal. Critics of the seal have condemned it as racist to the state's native peoples. The current seal was approved in the 19th century and depicts a disembodied arm holding a sword above the head of a Native American. A state panel considering changing it missed its deadline to finish work by the end of last year. Last week, the legislature gave the panel an extension to November 15th of this year. Got some rain, even some light snow overnight tonight, about 36 for a low. Tomorrow could start up with snow and drizzle, then just a lot of rain during the day. Chilly compared to today, only in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. There has been yet another mass shooting in this country, this time at a Christian elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee. Police say at least six people, including three children, were killed after a woman opened fire at the school. That woman was then shot and killed by police. Alexis Marshall of WPLN in Nashville has been following the story and joins us now. Alexis, tell us what you know so far about what happened at the school. So a little after 10 o'clock this morning, police received a call about shots being fired at a Christian school in a neighborhood kind of southwest of downtown Nashville. Five officers responded and entered the school and went toward the sound of gunshots, according to police. And um, two officers... Uh, encountered a woman on the second floor and opened fire, killing the shooter who police have now identified as a 28-year-old woman from the Nashville area. Um, And this all happened really quickly. It was over within 14 minutes, according to police. Um, The woman entered the school through through a side door and began firing. 
um, three children and three adult staff members were killed. It's not clear where in the school they were killed, but we do know from police that some children and staff were able to get out of the school and flee to a nearby tree line. Um, we also know that dozens of students and staff from the school were bused to a nearby church to be reunited with family. And what about the victims? What do we know about them right now? Police have just released the identities of the victims here in the last few minutes. They were Evelyn Deke House, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kinney, all age nine, as well as Cynthia Peake, who's 61, Catherine Kuntz, age 60, and Mike Hill, age 61. Um, and a note here that Kuntz was the headmaster at this school, which is called the Covenant School. It's a small private elementary school with only about 200 students, and it serves kids from pre-K through the sixth grade, um, has about a little over 30 teachers, um, and the school is connected to the Covenant Presbyterian Church here in Nashville. At this point, what have the authorities been saying about the suspected shooter and why she chose to attack this school? So police haven't released her name, um, and they also haven't released her motive. She's a 28-year-old white woman who lived here in Nashville. They say that she had two assault-style rifles with her, as well as a handgun of some kind. Um, and as we know, she entered the school through a side door, but police say that um, the doors at the school were locked and that they're still investigating how uh, she gained access. Nashville Police Chief John Drake says that there was a vehicle parked nearby that helped police identify the woman, but they haven't released additional details um, about her social media history or anything about her suspective motive. Um, but Drake did say that she has ties to the school and that to his knowledge, she was formerly enrolled at the school. I know that you're speaking to us from a church or near a church where children are being united with their families, a situation that no family wants to find themselves in. What are things like where you are right now? Yeah, I'm actually talking to you from a parking lot across the street from that church. They're, they're not letting media on the property right now. But I was here earlier today, and it was right after a lot of parents had gotten the news. Um, and I saw several people walking, one even running into Woodmont Baptist Church. Um, I saw a number of people were on the phone looking concerned as they were walking in. One woman appeared to be having difficulty walking and a man had kind of slung his arm around her um, it, to, to help her walk into that reunification center. Um, some families are still trickling out of the church and um, we're expecting authorities to continue releasing more information uh, as the day and night goes on. Alexis Marshall of WPLN in Nashville. Alexis, thank you. Thank you. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments today in an important case testing the limits of the First Amendment. A federal law makes it a crime to encourage or induce illegal immigration. But there's a question whether that encouragement actually amounts to protected free speech. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Look at the Supreme Court's history, and you will see a lot of cases in which odious defendants bring tough First Amendment questions to the court. Today's case was one of those. The defendant is Helaman Hansen, who conned 471 non-citizens into believing they could obtain U.S. citizenship through adult adoption. 
By enrolling these non-citizens in this non-existent program, Hansen defrauded these people of more than $1.8 million. In 2017, a jury convicted him on 15 counts of mail and wire fraud, for which he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. But it also found him guilty of two counts of encouraging or inducing these non-citizens to remain in the United States, and it is those two counts that were the focus of today's argument. The issue before the court is whether a federal law making it a crime to induce unlawful immigration sweeps up a substantial amount of speech that's protected by the First Amendment. Defending the conviction, Deputy Solicitor General Brian Fletcher argued that if the statute is construed narrowly, it is constitutional. The First Amendment does not protect speech that is intended to induce or commence specific illegal activities. The justices had a lot of questions. Here, for instance, is Justice Kavanaugh. What do you say to the um, charitable organizations that say, uh, even under your narrowing construction, there's still going to be a chill or a threat of uh, prosecution for them for providing food and shelter and aid? Justice Sotomayor followed up. We do know that uh, Customs Department made a list of all of the people, religious entities, the lawyers, and others who were providing services to immigrants at the border and was saying that they intended to rely on this statute to prosecute them. Justice Kagan had more questions. What happens to all the cases where it could be a lawyer, it could be a doctor, it could be a neighbor, it could be a friend, it could be a teacher, it could be anybody, says to a non-citizen, I really think you should stay. Fletcher acknowledged that when family members urge someone to stay, that is the hardest case. He said there's no way to deal with all the variables that could come up, prompting this from Justice Sotomayor. So why should we uphold the statute that criminalizes words? That's what we're doing with this statute. It's a first of a kind. ACLU lawyer Esha Danbari picked up that thread, arguing on behalf of the defendant. Unless the court clips the wings of this statute, she said. Congress and the states will be free, without any First Amendment scrutiny, to criminalize speech soliciting violations of the vast range of administrative and regulatory laws that govern us today, from mask and vaccine mandates to parking ordinances. But she, too, faced some tough hypotheticals, like this one from Justice Alito. What about someone who encourages a person who's intellectually disabled to commit suicide? Danbari replied that the government has an interest in protecting the vulnerable, and if a statute were narrowly drawn, it could survive. Justice Gorsuch asked how her client's rights are being violated because under just about any standard of intent, he would be convicted. Danbari acknowledged that her client had defrauded many people and would go to jail for 20 years, but she said that the challenge here is to the statute as a whole and how it could inhibit speech about almost anything. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. U.S. sales of heat pumps overtook sales of gas furnaces last year. But what exactly is a heat pump and why do some call it a key climate solution? Julia Simon of NPR's Climate Desk has this report. In a backyard near Oakland, in between the wind whistling through bamboo and the meowing of a cat, there's another small sound. The very low whir of a heat pump. Owner James Tucker got it installed last year. It goes to a fan box in the attic that blows the cool and the heat into the house. 
That's right, heat pumps can also cool your home. A lot of people dislike the name heat pump, right? Some people want to call them heat and cool pumps or something like that. But um, I think we're kind of stuck with, with the name. Kevin Kirscher is a professor of engineering at Purdue University. He says you can think of a heat pump as an air conditioner that can also work backwards, using electricity to move heat into your home. Now there's a new incentive for Americans to get heat pumps. From last year's federal climate legislation, an IRS spokesperson told told NPR that there are now credits that can translate to up to $2,000 for heat pumps. Kevin Hanley, coordinator at a heat pump installer in Lincoln, Nebraska, says the new rebates are now cutting the payback time. The rebates um, are such that it makes a heat pump really um, worth considering for all homeowners. The Biden administration and governments around the world see heat pumps as a key climate solution. They can replace gas furnaces in homes, and they run on electricity that's increasingly powered by renewables. Yannick Monschauer of the International Energy Agency in Paris says if governments like the U.S. and the EU meet their national climate and energy targets. We see that uh, heat pumps could bring down global CO2 emissions by half a gigaton by the end of this decade. That's a lot of emissions. So that is comparable to uh, the annual emissions of Canada. While in the past, heat pumps didn't work well in cold climates, Monschauer says there's been a lot of improvement. In fact, in the coldest parts of Europe, we also have the highest shares of heat pumps. So in Norway, for example, 60% of the households are equipped with heat pumps. So it's, it's definitely proven that it's possible. In the U.S., about 14% of homes have heat pumps. Heating technicians say this year, demand is growing. Julia Simon, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on WBUR this afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Garo Hagopian. It's 518. Coming up on All Things Considered, a conversation with former U.S. Ambassador to Israel Dan Shapiro about demonstrations in Israel around Netanyahu's controversial plan to reform the judiciary. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Checking Wall Street, the Dow gained six-tenths of a percent, the Nasdaq fell nearly one-half of, uh, one of a percent, and the S&P 500 rose just over a tenth of a percent. In business news, Cambridge-based cancer pharma company Jounce Therapeutics has announced a $96 million plan to be acquired by Concentra Biosciences. Jounce announced the merger today and says as a result it will lay off about 84% of its staff. That will leave just 12 people. Concentra is a little-known company controlled by Tang Capital Partners in San Diego. Jounce has scrapped plans announced last month to merge with the British company Redex Pharma. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, April 6th to 16th, bostonballet.org. 
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Checking the forecast, we've got uh, some rain and light snow in parts of the area tonight, about 36 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, could start up with a mix of snow and drizzle. Should be just plain rain by the afternoon. Chilly compared to today, only around the mid-40s. Midweek should bring back the sunshine and milder temperatures could reach 50 degrees. Right now, 48 with clouds. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Adrian Florido. There's a lot of talk about China possibly supplying weapons to Russia for its war in Ukraine. But one Chinese product already plays a critical role on the battlefield. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie explains. It's part of the soundtrack of the war in Ukraine. That's the distinctive buzzing of a drone. This one made by the Chinese company DGI. The drone costs just $2,000 or so. It's easy to fly, widely available, and hugely popular worldwide among civilians. It's also a hot commodity for troops on both sides of the war in Ukraine. Before this war, people mostly used them to play around with things for experimental purposes, for things like, uh, you know, can I drop a water bottle? You see these videos on YouTube. Fane Greenwood is a researcher based in Boston. She's documenting drone use in Ukraine based largely on videos that appear on social media. The Ukrainians and the Russians, too, have figured out ways to modify these devices they've purchased online to make more and more creative ways to drop explosives from these small consumer drones. Greenwood has logged more than a thousand cases over the past year and can identify the type of drone used in half of them. By far the most popular, for both reconnaissance and for attacks, are the DGI commercial drones made in China. They account for more than half that Greenwood has been able to identify. This is happening even though DGI announced a year ago that it would not sell drones to Ukraine or Russia because of the fighting. They have explicitly always said that they only make drones for civilian purposes, so they've never sold to, they don't sell to militaries, they don't market to militaries. In an email to NPR, DGI says it's aware some of its drones are sent to Russia and Ukraine after they're purchased in other countries. The company says it opposes this practice, but has no way of stopping it. And DGI drones are very easy to get. Just check out Amazon. And they continue to make their way to the front lines in Ukraine. Kelly Greco is with the Stimson Center in Washington. When most Americans think about drone warfare, the image I think that comes to mind is from the global war on terror, which were military-grade, sophisticated, expensive capabilities that were used to strike particularly at high-value targets. The reality is very different in Ukraine. What we're seeing is that there's a commercial drone market that has emerged. 
And these, you know, drones are essentially flying cameras. They're very useful to provide eyes on a battlefield. DGI drones aren't made to fire weapons, but they can be easily modified to carry a grenade or other small explosive, which can be dropped with great precision into trenches filled with troops or directly into the open top of a tank. Ukrainian troops began using these drones early on and post videos daily on Twitter, Telegram, and other social media. In turn, these videos help Ukrainian groups fundraise to buy more drones. Again, Kelly Grieco. Ukraine's been very successful in creating a strategic narrative to really keep Western support. Part of that is showing that it's a viable adversary, that they have spunk. And a lot of that gets communicated with these um, drone videos. At the start of the war, Russia tried and failed to establish air superiority with its fighter jets. Now it's turned to a cheaper option. Russia uses military drones made in Iran to carry out attacks and DGI drones mostly for surveillance. While DGI drones are constantly in the skies over Ukraine, they do have limitations mostly linked to the life of their batteries. They only travel about five miles, they stay aloft for less than an hour, they can only carry a light explosive. Andrei Liskovich heads the Ukraine Defense Fund, a private group helping the military. The downside of these drones is that they can be shot out of the sky with the rifles, because when they do these drops, they have to be not very high, maybe 70 to 100 meters. And at that range, you can use an AK-47 to hit it if, if you are a decent shot. Liskovich was born in Ukraine and has a doctorate from Harvard and was an executive at Uber in California. But when Russia invaded last year, he dropped everything to assist Ukraine's military. He's working with Western tech companies to develop drones that can fly further and stay aloft longer. The goal is a real-time view of the battlefield for longer-range Ukrainian artillery fired at Russian positions. Another big challenge is to build systems that can't be jammed electronically by Russia, says Liskovich. He spoke to NPR from the eastern city of Zaporizhia. So you need to constantly play this arms race game with the enemy. Still, drones are already doing things hard to imagine, until they happen. Recently, a Russian fighter surrendered to a Ukrainian drone, which filmed the capitulation. The Ukrainians posted the video, along with instructions on how other Russian soldiers could do the same. It's part of a project they call, I Want to Live. Greg Myrie, NPR News. As humans change the environment around us, those changes are coming with surprising consequences, some of which are evident in rainforests around the world. Deforestation is destroying their local ecosystems, and it's also affecting the weather. Lauren Sommer from NPR's Climate Desk explains. In a lot of ecosystems around the world, if it doesn't rain, they're out of luck. But not in the big tropical rainforests of the world, because they make their own rain. I remember learning about it for the first time and I was just like, wow. Calum Smith is a PhD researcher at the University of Leeds. He says first, storms blow in from the ocean and it rains. And those trees receive that rain and it falls on their leaves and goes into the soils. And then the trees use that water and release a lot of moisture, either through their leaves or evaporation. That humid air rises and helps create clouds. And it's pushed along by the prevailing winds until it is rained out somewhere else on another tree 
and then the same thing happens in this big cycle. It's called precipitation recycling. This recycling process can happen over and over, spanning hundreds of miles across the rainforest, helping it sustain itself. In the Amazon and the Congo, it accounts for almost half of the total rainfall. But millions of acres of rainforest have been cut down over the past several decades, which breaks the cycle. When we were moving trees, we're making the environment drier. And that lack of moisture that's a big cloud above those trees just disappears. In a new study in the journal Nature, Smith and his colleagues found that deforestation is directly leading to drought. In the Congo, it could reduce local rainfall by 10 percent by the end of the century. Scientists are also seeing the impact in the Amazon. The forest depends on, on rainfall. If you don't have enough rain, you don't have this forest. It doesn't exist. Bernardo Flores is an ecologist at the Federal University of Santa Catarina in Brazil. He says the Amazon is also being stressed by hotter temperatures, and the concern is that the rainforest is heading toward a tipping point. You would trigger this, like a, a domino effect, related to loss of rainfall. Then you would lose a large part of the Amazon. We wouldn't be able to control that anymore. It would mean a huge hit to the world's biodiversity, as well as local indigenous communities and farmers. Flores says stopping deforestation is key here, but it's not the whole solution. Rainforests also need global temperatures to stop rising. Lauren Summer, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us this afternoon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian. Coming up in 15 minutes on All Things Considered, zookeepers in Dallas are working with international conservation groups to implement a survival plan for penguins. It includes DNA matching to make sure the right penguin couples get together. In sports, the Red Sox bats were fairly quiet today at spring training. Boston lost its matinee matchup with the Atlanta Braves 6-1. The final game of spring training for the Sox is tomorrow afternoon once more against the Braves. In the forecast, cloudy skies in Boston right now. We've got some rain and light snow for parts of the area ahead tonight. About 36 for a low. Tomorrow could start up with a mix of rain, a mix of snow and drizzle. Should be just plain rain by the afternoon. Chilly compared to today, only in the mid-40s. Right now, 48 with clouds. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. 10,000 civilians are living in the middle of a war in the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. Everyone comes here with his own story of misery and pain, but you can't cry and sympathize with them too much. We speak sternly, focus on the here and now so they don't fall apart. With their city in ruins, what's being done to help get them out? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A family-controlled bank headquartered in North Carolina has acquired most of Silicon Valley Bank after its failure and government takeover earlier this month. From North Carolina Public Radio, Bradley George has the story. First Citizens Bank and Trust, based in Raleigh, has more than 500 branches in 22 states. It's one of the nation's largest banks and is family-controlled. 
CEO Frank Holding told investors on a conference call that First Citizens is a suitable buyer for SVB. We're proud to be recognized in the banking sector for conservatism and strength, evidenced by our exemplary liquidity and capital reserves. This is a major reason why First Citizens has completed more FDIC transactions than almost any bank since 2009. SVB's 17 former branches are now operating under the First Citizens name. The FDIC will hold on to about $90 billion of the failed bank's assets. For NPR News, I'm Bradley George in Chapel Hill. The Biden administration cracking down on the commercial spyware industry, barring the U.S. government from purchasing certain digital surveillance tools that could threaten national security. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports. President Biden is announcing a new executive order that bans U.S. government agencies from acquiring commercial spyware products that could pose undue counterintelligence risks. Part of the reason for that is that some of these tools have been weaponized against U.S. government personnel as well as journalists and human rights advocates around the globe. The effort is targeted at curbing abuse of spyware and, according to the White House, fostering responsible use of surveillance technology. Not all spyware would be banned under the executive order. Instead, it gives the government more authority to review and possibly reject potential contracts with vendors. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. The MBTA has a new boss. Governor Healy announced today that Philip Ang will take over as T General Manager next month. Ang has worked in the transportation field for nearly four decades. He's credited with turning around the Long Island Railroad in New York, leading it to the best ever on-time performance. At a news conference in Newton this afternoon, Ang shared his desire to fix the T's problems. Being an engineer, so whenever I see problems, I have a need to solve it. I have a need to fix it. The status quo is not acceptable. And moving forward, we will be innovative, open to new ideas, and think of outside-of-the-box solutions. The MBTA's interim general manager, Jeff Gonneville, will remain at the T and assist with the transition. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill heard from Governor Healy today on her plan to create a new Secretary of Housing and Livable Communities. Healy's proposal would split the Executive Office of Housing and Economic Development into two offices. The governor testified before members of the House and Senate. She says there's not enough affordable housing in Massachusetts, and lawmakers need to think outside the box to tackle the problem. It is going to require that we do things a little differently, and there may be some discomfort around some of that, but it's an imperative. We are not going to make it. We want people to stay here. We want them to grow families and businesses and prosperity. Representative Antonio Cabral co-chaired today's hearing. He says the goal is to have the new housing secretary in place by the start of the new fiscal year, July 1st. Elizabeth Warren wants to be the state's senior senator for six more years. The Massachusetts Democrat announced her re-election bid today. Warren was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 2012, defeating Republican Scott Brown. She ran unsuccessfully for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. In sports, the Red Sox lost to the Braves 6-1 to in spring training. And in the forecast, been a beautiful day, but we've got some rain and even light snow tonight. About 36 for a low. Tomorrow could start up with a mix of snow and drizzle. Should be just plain rain by the afternoon. Right now in Boston, we're at 48 degrees, cloudy skies. This is WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the judicial system has essentially shut the country down amid massive protests and a general strike of government workers. The tension has been building for months, but it hit fever pitch last night after Netanyahu fired his defense minister, who opposed the prime minister's proposed overhaul of the nation's courts. Amid the backlash, Netanyahu said earlier today he will delay his proposal, which many people in Israel believe is a threat to the country's democracy. Let's bring in Daniel Shapiro. He's former U.S. ambassador to Israel. Welcome. Good to be with you. You're in Tel Aviv. Uh, What impact is the prime minister's announcement today to delay this plan having on the protests and the broader state of affairs as you can see it? Well, I think it gives everybody a chance to exhale for a moment. Israel is about to go through a period of holidays, Passover, and then it's Independence Day, Memorial Day period. Those are periods when usually the country tries to be A, relaxed, and B, somewhat unified. And the last three months have been anything but relaxed and unified. It's been, uh, as you said, a fever pitch of tension, of protests. So the announcement that that uh, legislation is now being postponed at least gives time to breathe. Uh, He did say that following the holidays when the Knesset returns to session in May. Uh, The Knesset being uh, the Israeli parliament. Yes, that's right. He would make another attempt to pass that legislation, but at least for now, people are able uh, to exhale and perhaps the protests will take a break for the holidays. Let's step back for a second. Uh, The prime minister is selling his plan as a set of judicial reforms, Uh, but what exactly would this plan do? The plan would give the executive branch, and really the executive and the legislative are very much fused in the Israeli system, a great deal more control, maybe almost supreme control, of the judicial system, first by uh, giving them the total uh, control over the appointment of judges, and second, it would remove from the court's ability to uh, review legislation or uh, declare it unconstitutional or declare actions by the executive branch uh, uh, unpermissible. And the overall concern that that raised with many Israelis who were protesting in these last weeks uh, was that it would uh, produce a concentration of power with virtually no check or balance in one branch of government, uh, rendering the Supreme Court quite toothless. Judging by the uproar, this fight seems to be symbolic of maybe a a much deeper fight about Israel's future. Can you help us understand why so many people are, are so opposed? Well, it certainly touched some deeper societal divisions. Obviously, Israelis are very proud of their democracy and and believe it's something that has served the country well for its 75 years. But it also has uh, struck other divisions in Israeli society. Uh, Some who favored this uh, overhaul of the judicial system did so because they felt the court prevented them from achieving their goals. Some of those goals included significant expansion of West Bank settlements in ways that the court was able to block. 
But at the same time, uh, the, those who were protesting uh, had a very legitimate concern that those other parts of society, the more right-wing, the more religious parts of society, might find that they had a greater say over the lives of the more progressive and more secular parts of society. Those divisions are, are very near the surface right now. Help us understand, Ambassador, uh, the U.S. position on this. What has the Biden administration said and done on this issue so far? The Biden administration has said very clearly in public that the core of the U.S.-Israel relationship uh, is the common values and common institutions and common practices of the two democratic societies. Uh, now, President Biden is a great believer in Israel, in its democracy, and a supporter of its security and right to defend itself. Uh, but he was very clear that uh, when making changes, fundamental changes in the system of governance in a democratic society, it's critical to achieve as broad a consensus as possible so those changes are widely accepted and enduring. He also made clear that any changes that would harm the traditional values of separation of powers, of rule of law, would be very, very concerning. Well, where do you think Netanyahu goes from here? Uh, do you think that these uh, protests have uh, the potential to force him to withdraw his proposal or might he feel more determined than ever to push it through? Well, what he said in his speech tonight uh, defers the crisis. It doesn't necessarily solve the crisis. He still has pressure from members of his coalition uh, who badly want to see uh, this rebalance occur and have the court significantly weakened. Uh, and they are parties that he depends on to stay in power. Uh, and to maintain his coalition. Uh, he still, of course, has uh, all of the protesters that have uh, expressed their opposition. Uh, and in polls, that's more than 50% of Israelis. So it may be uh, that the same crisis that Israel has just been through returns uh, over the summer. Uh, hopefully, uh, they will find a way toward a more consensual outcome. A fascinating developing story. Dan Shapiro is a former U.S. ambassador to Israel, now with the Atlantic Council. Thank you. Thank you. Michelangelo's classic sculpture, David, is causing a stir on both sides of the Atlantic. After a picture of the statue was shown in a Florida classroom, a principal was pressured to resign. Soon after, the mayor of Florence, Italy, weighed in. NPR's Juliana Kim reports. Every year, sixth graders at Tallahassee Classical School study Michelangelo's David. It's part of an art history lesson on the Renaissance. But this month, things went awry at the public charter school. The lesson sparked a mass apology letter, an emergency school board meeting, and a principal's resignation. I've had other people who are like, wow, a lot of other things have happened in other schools that seem a whole lot worse and, you know, nothing happened. Um, none of this seems like I should have risen to this level. That's Hope Karaskia. She had been the school's principal for about nine months. She says the fallout began after administrators forgot to send out an email notifying parents about the art lesson ahead of time. I made the assumption that the letter went out and I didn't follow up on it. Three parents complained, one of whom compared the statue to pornographic material. An apology letter soon followed. But even after that, the principal was asked to meet with the school board chair, Barney Bishop III. He gave her an ultimatum, resign or be terminated without cause. Bishop says there were multiple reasons the principal was let go, and he emphasized that the problem wasn't the picture, but the process of notifying parents. And we're going to teach it regardless of whether parents are in favor of it or not. But if they're not in favor of it, we're going to give them alternative curriculum 
The debacle comes at a time when the issue of what's taught in schools is hotly contested, both in Florida and across the U.S. Bishop believes parents are entitled to determine what's age-appropriate for their children. And Karaskia agrees that parents and schools should work together. But she says... I mean, I have faculty members who are like, it's making them nervous because they're like, wow, if this could happen to the head of our school in this way, for this kind of reason or non-reason, like none of us are safe. Karaskia stepped down last Monday. In the past few days, she's received support from all over, including Florence, Italy, where David is displayed. Florence's mayor personally invited her to the city, saying anyone who teaches Michelangelo's masterpiece deserves respect. Karaskia says she feels honored by the recognition, but she's still sad to no longer work at her school, and she's unsure what she'll do next. Juliana Kim, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. An algorithm is helping with some crucial work in the dating lives of penguins in Dallas, Texas. They are part of an international effort to save their species in the wild. Katherine Hobbs of member station KERA reports. It's a windy morning at the Dallas Zoo. A colony of 11 penguins waddles clumsily towards their keeper, Kevin Graham. It's breeding season, and the zoo is counting on four bonded pairs to lay viable eggs. And not just because penguin chicks are cute. This group is responsible in part for the survival of their entire species. If the worst happens and an extinction crisis becomes imminent, we have a population that could be the reservoir. And the penguin pairs at the Dallas Zoo are no coincidence. They were matched up by a sophisticated algorithm that first analyzed their DNA and then linked them up with a genetically ideal partner. This highly scientific dating service, uh, Hatch.com if you will, ensures eggs laid by a breeding pair will be viable and contribute to a genetically diverse captive population. But just because an algorithm says a pair is a good match doesn't mean they'll hit it off. Sometimes they need a little extra push, and that means they get their own enclosure and go on a penguin date. A lot of vocalization, a lot of body posturing, a lot of interacting, and that's if it goes well. If it doesn't, we hope they ignore each other, but penguins that don't get along are feisty. So if the date goes poorly, the penguin could go mateless, but there's even a place for them, the Dallas World Aquarium. Here, Susan Schmidt is the avian collection manager. Her collection of penguins, she says, is a sort of bachelor retirement community. They're adorable. I mean, you can't help but like them. They're cute. They're funny to watch walk. While these penguins aren't a part of a breeding program, they do serve special roles as ambassador animals. Their job is to teach visitors about the efforts to save their wild cousins. The Dallas Zoo and the aquarium are at the forefront of this work. Every year, members of their staff travel to South Africa, where these warm-weathered penguins live. That's right. Penguins aren't exclusive to Antarctica. These penguins migrate to nest off the blazing hot islands off Africa's coast. There, they call out to their lifelong mate and reunite at the same nest each year. But those nests are threatened by development, coastal erosion, and illegal guano harvesting, the material used to make the nests. Julie Farrington's a zoologist at the Dallas Zoo. Out there, it's traveling to all the different nesting sites where the penguins are still trying to nest. Farrington and her colleagues help homeless penguin pairs by providing housing assistance in the form of artificial nests. 
These nests are about the size of a dog crate. And it's getting those nests out there for the birds to use. And as soon as we get those nests down on the ground, birds are in them. This year, the penguin matchmakers placed 350 nests in the wild. Meanwhile, at the Dallas Zoo, the keepers are still impatiently waiting to see if any new chicks will be joining the colony. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Hobson, Dallas. For years, a father in the Bay Area would think about the time when his newborn daughter was struggling to survive and a doctor who showed him unwavering compassion. But he couldn't remember that doctor's name until recently. Hear what happened when one man finally got to thank his unsung hero. On the next All Things Considered, listen on air, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play your NPR member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopian. It's 548. Coming up at 6, we'll have an update from Nashville, Tennessee, on the deadly shooting at a school that killed three children and three adults. Authorities say the shooter was killed by police. That and more still ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington now through April 23rd, huntingtontheater.org. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can now do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it in the App Store today. In sports, the Red Sox lost a spring training matinee with the Atlanta Braves 6-1. to Also today, the team sent first baseman Bobby Dahlbeck to, down to AAA Worcester. The move opens up a roster spot for infielder Yu Chang. In the forecast, clouds have moved in and should spend the night and the day tomorrow. Lows tonight in the mid-30s. Tomorrow's highs in the mid-40s, gray and rainy, maybe some snow flurries in the morning. Right now in Boston, cloudy skies and 48 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I believe real journalism is essential to our daily life and our collective future. I believe public radio is one of the last great hopes for journalism in our country. If you believe these things too, then I'm asking you to start a monthly contribution to WBUR. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, maybe just 10 to $15 a month. It'll go a long way to protect one of life's essentials. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Adrian Florido. In 2018, at a small venue in New York's West Village, three musicians who'd never played together got on stage for a gig. The room was really charged. Even before we had played, like there was already like a feeling of needing to say something to the audience about what this is about to be. Aruj Aftab is a Grammy-winning singer and composer. That night, she was joined by composers Vijay Iyer and Shazad Ismaili. Aftab didn't know what she would say to the audience, the trio had never even rehearsed, but Aftab, who was Pakistani, found herself trying to explain the intention behind the music, to reflect on leaving one's home and finding meaning and belonging along the way. 
she used the phrase love in exile. And luckily Vijay remembered that. So it's a great <laughs> title for the record. Cuz I certainly did not remember anything that I said in that moment. The three of them started calling their group Love in Exile, and now that's also the title of their new album. Nate Chenen from WRTI in Philadelphia sat down with the band to hear how their sound grew out of that one night in 2018. Here's composer Vijay Iyer. I think the best bands begin with a feeling. You know, it's sort of this feeling like this has to keep happening, and that's basically how we felt after that. I remember when we were coming off stage, Shazad just held us together and, like, literally put his arms around us. How does the play of wide open improvisational texture and like traditional elements and, you know, folk elements, like what is the play of of that in this group? Because it strikes me as really organic, but also like very considered. Yeah, you would think that it's all ambient and there's a lot of space and we're just sort of like new aging it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's very, if you listen, it's, it's very tight. It's super knit together. And, and I think that comes from just like our experience as composers over so many decades mm-hmm. and just ears are really open and that capability to just like lead and follow each other and, you know, and keeping it so contextual instead of just, it's not a free jam. It's succinct ideas that kind of lead into another idea. And then at some point we're like, okay, we're kind of done here. Now we're just noodling. And so we're kind of, it's like we wrap it up too, (laughs) you know, it's uh, it's solid. And I'd say when you're talking about the varied impulses or the varied textural spaces of a language, words from from a cultural space or musical choices, what I imagine to be behind that is the initial human impulse to make sound. Like if I, I often, in a romanticized way, think about what it was like 20,000 years ago when sound, when we were making sound together. If we pull back and the three of us tap into that impulse, then we're on the same track regardless of what, what clothing we're wearing <laughs> musically mm-hmm. in a moment. Let's talk about the lyrics on the album. I'd love an example of a piece in which what you're singing comes out of what's happening musically or... So, like, I wanted to be an instrument too, which is like a really cheesy thing that vocalists say from time to time. Um, And it just doesn't really go anywhere because you just can't be an instrument. You're the vocalist, Mm. you know, it just doesn't work that way. But when you're scatting, you know, you can scratch that surface a little bit. I'm saying lots of random fragments of things because I'm trying to just use them as vowels to really just sing. So I kind of, on this project, cringe when people are like, "What are the? what's the translation of the lyrics? And <laughs> right. it's like, no, because then it's going to be about that. You yeah, know? yeah. But I will say that, of course, I'm not a monster. So like whatever I'm, whatever we're playing, like I'm feeling it and I am saying stuff mm. that is, it's not disconnected. So for example, Shadow Forces, 
I'm actually singing a Reshma tune, you know, which is in Punjabi. Again, it's like fragments, you know, so it felt kind of shadowy and kind of dark. And then there's always like the dark just opposed with the bright moment in, in many of the pieces. It's not ever just one color. And so the freedom to kind of put different phrases from different poems and different pieces together is what's happening on the record lyrically for me. I often ask students, you kind of use it as this like Zen koan or something, which is what does listening sound like? <laughs> but that is actually what it sounds like when Aruj isn't singing, she's listening. And when she is singing, she's listening. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that we're all, the, what makes it work is the quality of listening. Mm -hmm. When I'm not singing, I'm usually also just drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing roses around. <laughs> I'll float one more question, which has to do with the life of this group after this music is, is out in the world. Are you using this material as kind of the, the springboard at this point, or is it a document and you've kind of moved on to exploring other areas. I hope to see us continue to perform all of the upcoming concerts with nothing prepared whatsoever and no relationship to the recorded material because what has been inspiring thus far for me has been walking out and listening and giving. I don't know what will come because I imagine check in with ourselves as the year unfolds and see Will we all walk away from each other, towards each other, towards something else? Mm. And we'll see. I think it's the sort of thing that can be made, remade, unmade. I think the main thing is that we want it to stay alive, you know, alive to us. Embracing yourself for audiences yelling, just play the hits. <laughs> <laughs> play that 14 minute hit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the, yeah, maybe the audience will get really attached to the record and will expect us to play it. Yeah, I definitely don't think we're going to formalize them as songs and just go and play those. That sounds really scary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the main thing about it is that this album kind of offers a place to be for a while. So we're just going to go back to that place every time. If we think about it that way, then we already have the answer. That was Vijay Iyer, Shazad Ismaili, and Aruj Aftab speaking with Nate Chinen of WRTI about their new album, Love in Exile. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Lemelson Foundation, 
dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up at 628, California counties are creating care courts for people with untreated severe mental illness. A judge may order treatment that counties must pay for. Civil liberties groups have sued to stop it. The story in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered. In the forecast, some rain around tonight, maybe a little snow mixed in toward dawn, low 36 degrees. Right now, 48 with clouds. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Opening April 1st, WorcesterArt.org. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A 28-year-old woman is said to have walked into a private Christian school in Nashville today with two assault rifles and a handgun. The suspect is now dead, as are three adults and three children at the school. The update on another mass shooting coming up. It's Monday, March 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Garo Hagopian. The MBTA has a new general manager. Governor Healy announces her pick to run the transit system. You'll hear the new leader's plans for turning things around on the T. A church in Mississippi was recently destroyed by tornadoes, but the local congregation is already in the process of rebuilding. There was a bell tower that went three stories up in the air with big cast iron or brass bell. It's in the wreckage. We hope to be able to save it. That story is coming up. Then at 6.30 on Marketplace, a recap of the day on Wall Street and how to restore confidence in banking after the Silicon Valley bank collapse. It's 6.01. News next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In Nashville, Tennessee today, three children and three adults were gunned down at a small private Christian school. Authorities say 28-year-old Audrey Hale of the Nashville area showed up with two assault rifles and at least one pistol and opened fire. First responders fatally shot the attacker. Nashville Police Chief John Drake told reporters after a search of a residence in the area, they found writings related to the shooting, and it appears that Hale planned the shooting ahead of time. We've also determined uh, there were uh, maps drawn of the school in detail of uh, surveillance, uh, entry points, etc. cetera. Uh, we know and believe that entry was gained through shooting through one of the doors uh, is how they actually uh, got uh, into the school. The police chief said that Hale acted alone and this was the only school targeted. President Biden called the shooting a family's worst nightmare and repeated his call for Congress to ban assault weapons. Haiti is sliding into a hunger emergency. That is a warning from the U.N.'s World Food Program, which is appealing for donors for more aid and more security. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Haiti has been racked by gang violence, and now the World Food Program, Jean-Martin Bauer, is sounding the alarm about the number of Haitians who don't have enough food. It's half of the population, and these are, simply put, some of the worst food security conditions on record. 
Bauer says armed gangs have been moving into farming areas and making this worse. He says it's vital for the security environment to improve. He's also urging donors to step up with more funding. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. More than two weeks after taking over Silicon Valley Bank, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has sold many of SVB's assets. NPR's Scott Horsley is tracking the fallout from this month's regional bank failures. North Carolina-based First Citizens Bank and Trust is buying all the loans and deposits of Silicon Valley Bank, which was taken over by the government earlier this month after a massive bank run. Silicon Valley's 17 bank branches are reopening today as First Citizens branches bank deposits will transfer automatically. The FDIC estimates the hit to its deposit insurance fund from the bank failure will be about $20 billion. The government also agreed to pay a portion of any losses that First Citizen suffers on Silicon Valley Bank loans. Two congressional committees are holding hearings later this week on how Silicon Valley Bank failed and how to prevent similar meltdowns in the future. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street at the close today, the Dow was up 194 points at 32,432. The S&P gained six points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. Governor Healy announced the MBTA's new general manager, Philip Ang, today. The engineer hails from New York and has about 40 years' experience working in transportation in different capacities. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez Reports, Eng says he's ready to take on the troubled transit system. Eng told reporters he knows the T faces safety, transparency, and reliability problems. He says he's ready to face those challenges head on. My pledge to the people of Massachusetts is that you will see meaningful, measurable steps being taken and progress being made in short order. Eng said he helped turn around New York's Long Island Railroad when it faced its worst on-time performance in decades. He believes he can do the same here. Jared Johnson of the Boston-based transit advocacy group Transit Matters says there are two things T-Riders are hoping to see from Ang soon. The real priority is going to be restoring service and restoring confidence in the agency. Ang starts the job April 10th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The Boston Marathon will have a new principal sponsor after this year's race. Bank of America is taking on the role. WBUR's Alex Ashlock has more on today's news. Bank of America is based in Charlotte, but its New England headquarters are here in Boston's financial district. David Tyree is Bank of America's chief digital and marketing officer. He said the marathon pairs perfectly with the bank's mission. When we looked at what their core philosophies were, they matched Bank of America. Community, charities, the runners, the families. Those are all things that we think about each and every day. So that was it, that was it for Bank of America. The financial terms of the deal were not disclosed. It takes effect with the 2024 marathon. John Hancock has sponsored the race since 1986, but that agreement ends with next month's marathon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. Mayor Michelle Wu is sharing Boston's plans to mark the 10 years since the 2013 marathon bombing. On Saturday, April 15th, Wu will join families who lost loved ones that day for a private wreath-laying at the memorial sites. At 2.30 that afternoon, Wu will be joined by people including Governor Healy, first responders, and local running groups at the marathon finish line. The group will dedicate new commemorative finish line and unveil One Boston Day, a One Boston Day marker on Boylston Street. In sports, the Red Sox lost to the Braves 6-1 in spring training. 
In the forecast, it's been a beautiful day, but we got some rain and even light snow tonight, about 36 for a low. Tomorrow could start up with a mix of snow and drizzle. Should be just plain rain by the afternoon. Right now, 48 with clouds. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. We are following the latest on a school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. Authorities say three children and three adults were killed this morning and that the alleged 28-year-old shooter was killed by police. NPR's Joe Hernandez has been following the story and joins us now. And Joe, what else are police saying about what happened this morning? Well, the first call came in at 10.13 a.m. local time for an active shooter at Covenant School, and this is a private religious school actually on the campus of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, and it serves preschool-aged kids through sixth grade and usually has about 200 students and 40 staff members. Police say three students and three staff members were killed in the shooting. They've since named the victims. The students were all age nine. The staff members included a janitor, a substitute teacher, Um, And Nashville Police Chief John Drake says all the parents of the children who were killed now have been notified. When we send our kids to school or to any place of safety, we expect them to live, learn, have fun and come back from that day, day's experience. We don't anticipate things like this. So when police arrived, two officers shot and killed the attacker. That was at 10.27 a.m., less than 15 minutes after the first 911 call came in. A spokesman for the Metro Nashville PD says he wasn't aware of any other gunshot victims, but one police officer had a wound from cut glass, and authorities were working to reunite parents with their children. And what else can you tell us at this point about the alleged shooter? Well, police say it was a 28-year-old from Nashville named Audrey Hale, and police believe Hale was a former student of Covenant School, but haven't said anything yet about a motive, why Hale might have done this. The police chief said they're looking through some writings now to learn more about what happened. And police say Hale shot through a side door of Covenant School and entered the school. Here's Metro Police uh, spokesperson Don Aaron. She entered the school through a side entrance and traversed her way from the first floor to the second floor, firing multiple shots. Hale was also quite heavily armed, police said, um, two AR-style weapons as well as a handgun, and two of those guns were obtained legally, at least two of them. And police also said Hale had no criminal history. Unfortunately, this is a familiar scenario in this country, reckoning with another school shooting. What has the local and national response been like to this tragedy? Yeah, there's been an outpouring of support, not only for the fact of the number of people killed, but also that it was children killed in a school. Um, Nashville Mayor John Cooper said the city was joining the, quote, dreaded long list of communities that suffered school shootings. And President Biden also made a comment on the shooting. He was at a a different event today and said it was heartbreaking, um, said it's a family's worst nightmare and called on Congress to do more to stop shootings. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart, ripping the soul of this nation, ripping at the very soul of the nation. He also again called on Congress to pass the assault weapons ban. We'll keep following this story. That's NPR's Joe Hernandez. Thank you. You're welcome.
Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he's delaying a vote in parliament on proposed changes to the court system. The proposal prompted widespread protests for months, and they intensified last night after Netanyahu fired his defense minister who spoke out against the plan. Today, labor strikes slowed service at hospitals and airports, and some military reservists skipped their duties. Protesters say the changes would put the courts under the control of Netanyahu's right-wing coalition. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Adrian. Daniel, uh, start by taking us through the dramatic events there today. Yeah, it was it was quite a day. Uh, I mean, all night long, protesters were blocking the main highway in Tel Aviv, the, the main metropolis in Israel. Uh, they were setting bonfires on the highway, and they were only cleared in the morning. And then, hours later, the country's main trade union announced a nationwide strike. So, as you mentioned, flights were grounded and delayed, and malls were closed, and e- even McDonald's closed in solidarity with the protesters. Mm-hmm. And the protesters uh, went to Jerusalem, surrounded the Israeli parliament, building, and everyone was waiting to see would Netanyahu's coalition go ahead with their plan and actually hold a final vote on their controversial judicial overhaul that has sparked months of protests. It seemed like they actually would hold that vote, but then his coalition partners um, huddled and then called on their right-wing supporters to come to Jerusalem and demonstrate in favor of the judicial overhaul, and thousands did. And then at night, Netanyahu got on live TV and said he was postponing this controversial legislation for just a month to give a chance for dialogue with the opposition, and then he is going to bring it back uh, for a vote. Okay, so postponing for just a month, but it doesn't sound like he's giving up on this proposal. What exactly are the changes he wants to make to the court system? That's right. He's not giving up. And, you know, the big picture is that he and his right-wing government think that the Supreme Court is too liberal and too powerful. So the main change that his government was pushing was to try to give the ruling coalition the power to actually select uh, some Supreme Court justices. They don't have that power now. And it's part of this larger effort that uh, Netanyahu wants to rebalance, in his, in his words, to rebalance Israel's checks and balances, to give more power to elected officials and to take away uh, some of the, the independence of unelected judges. So on the surface, I mean, these sound like some pretty technical changes. Uh, why are people so opposed to these moves? You know, you have to understand that in Israel, there's no constitution. And the court, the Supreme Court, is really the protector of individual rights and minority rights. And so protesters have been saying that uh, these changes, if the government has power to select Supreme Court justices, it could tip the balance of the court. It could be a first step for this right-wing ultranationalist religious coalition to to try to pass their their main agenda, which is passing laws that uh, they want to, in the protesters' eyes, infringe on on secular Israelis' rights, on LGBTQ rights, and even rights for Palestinians. Well, you've been talking with people, uh, protesters, on both sides of this debate. What have they been telling you? Well, it was a really, really stormy day, and you know there were protesters uh, against this reform in the streets with Israeli flags. And now that Netanyahu has suspended the government, the the, the legislation, uh, the protest organizers are saying democracy is still in danger. They are not calling off protests. They're uh, they vowing to continue, but the the main trade union has called off uh, the main nationwide strike. We're going to see if all these uh, these moves and if Netanyahu's freezing and suspension of the legislation will actually bring calm back to the country. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Daniel. You're welcome.
People in the small farming community of Rolling Fork, Mississippi are mourning and cleaning up following the devastating storms and tornado that killed at least 26 people in the region on Friday night. Maya Miller from the Gulf States newsroom visited with parishioners of a nearly 100-year-old church that collapsed as they looked for things to salvage from the wreckage. As you drive into Rolling Fork, you'll notice most of the trees here lean northward after a tornado battered the area, ripping homes apart and sending pickup trucks hurtling through the air. There are bricks from people's homes scattered across town. As you see in Rolling Fork, there's hardly a tree left standing. Father Greg Proctor is an Episcopal priest at Chapel of the Cross Church in Rolling Fork. Chapel of the Cross was one year shy of celebrating 100 years in this red brick building, but now more than half of the church has been destroyed. There was a bell tower that went three stories up in the air with big cast iron or brass bell. It's in the wreckage. We hope to be able to save it. The bell tower collapsed onto the pews, barely missing the altar. On Sunday, instead of having services, nearly a dozen men sort through the wreckage, salvaging silver and panels of stained glass. Some are members of his congregation, but others, Proctor says, are from out of town. They just showed up with plywood and and some hands. Proctor has a small congregation, and his parishioners have questions. But for now, they want to be useful, for which he's grateful. commandment to love God and love your neighbor have been shown this uh, these last two days as, as people have come together to help. One person who's here to help is William Moore, a lifelong member of Chapel of the Cross. He's attended for more than 60 years. I'm devastated. Uh, it's a small congregation, and I've been the treasurer for 40 years. <laughs> so it's, it's, my, it's my life. As he looks at the damage, he takes a deep breath and struggles to keep talking. It was probably the prettiest church in the county, uh, and it's gone. So, yeah, it's sad. To deal with the loss, Moore's instinct is to be here to help. And he's not the only one. There are utility trucks, construction equipment, and emergency vehicles all over town trying to piece Rolling Fork back together. And Moore says he's here for the long haul, too. You've been here helping out and navigating all of this. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, as long as it takes. Mm -hmm. This is my church. For now... Father Proctor says they're coming up with a plan to get Sunday services going again. Well, we may not be in this building anymore. It's hard to say for sure. But uh, we will have a worship space and we will gather to praise God's grace. He hopes next Sunday will be that day. For NPR News, I'm Maya Miller in Rolling Fork, Mississippi. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Higopian. Coming up on Marketplace at 6.30, what will it really take to restore confidence in the banking system for consumers rattled by the Silicon Valley bank collapse? On Wall Street, the Dow and S&P both picked up territory to start the week. The Dow rose six-tenths of a percent. The S&P was up 0.16 percent. The Nasdaq ended the day on the losing side, down about half a percent. You'll hear a full recap of the day on Wall Street ahead on Marketplace. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass. Guides on buying and selling real estate in greater Boston, available at mraboston.com WBUR. In local business news, the largest ground fish operation in New England is shutting down its processing plant in New Bedford. Blue Harvest Fisheries says it'll invest its resources instead on upgrading its fishing boats. The company will lay off 64 employees in May as part of the plant closure. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples, cambridgenaturals.com, and Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Well, it's been a pretty nice day, but we've got some rain and even light snow tonight, about 36 for a low. Tomorrow could start up with a mix of snow and drizzle. Should be just plain rain by the afternoon. Chilly compared to today, only around the mid-40s for highs. Right now, 46 degrees with clouds in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University School of Music with a free concert at Symphony Hall Saturday, April 1st. Reserve at bu.edu slash cfa slash symphony hall. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Juana Summers. Eight counties in California will launch an experiment this fall aiming to fix a seemingly intractable problem, how to get treatment for people with the most serious mental health challenges, many of whom wind up homeless and with drug or alcohol use disorders. Too often, they end up cycling in and out of police holds, jail, or emergency rooms and don't get help. But under these care courts, a judge will be able to order mental health treatments and other support under a care plan that counties have to fund. As NPR's Eric Westervelt reports, the rollout is being met with both praise and fierce opposition. In Diana and Lauren Burdick's home in suburban Rancho Cordova, east of Sacramento, five parents are talking about their kids over a lunch of curried chicken, potato chips, and fruit salad. Her hair is finally growing oh, out. Oh, yeah, that's, that's better than the last time I saw her. This ordinary lunch with friends is also a vital support group. Every parent here has an adult child with a severe mental illness, a son or daughter who's also struggled with homelessness, substance abuse, and arrests. Using her phone, Diana shows a picture of her son, Michael, who's lived on the streets since 2014. That's pretty much what he looks like right now. Oh, my yeah. gosh. See, anybody looking at him would say, that's not right. He doesn't feel good. Yeah. This is a couple days ago. 
Diana says her son, now 49, used to play guitar in a band, loved to draw elaborate pen and ink landscapes, and worked for a time as an electrician's apprentice. But for a very long time now, her son's been gripped by delusions and paranoia, she says, and frequently self-medicates with street narcotics, mostly methamphetamine. Diana was recently turned down when she tried to get Michael into the county's assisted outpatient treatment program because he's never been diagnosed. He doesn't want any help, Diana says, because Michael refuses to think of himself as ill at all. In fact, he thinks that he owns Ikea and that I have a trust fund with Bill Clinton and that I should be giving him monthly checks. And that's why he refuses to get care, because he does not believe anything's wrong with him and that if I would just give him that money, he would be fine. Diana has no idea where he sleeps. Most every day, though, she drops off food for him at a nearby store. We're just kind of waiting for him to get arrested again for something, she says, that might push him into care. As Michael's stepdad, Lauren, puts it, unless they can put pressure on him, Michael is very likely to stay on the streets ill, drug-addled, and lost. Well, kind of look at it. He's in that dark hole right now. And if you can force treatment on him, there's a chance he could possibly crawl out of it. But without some way to force him to do something, he won't do it. It's exactly this mix that California's care courts, which launch in eight counties this fall, aim to address. People suffering with untreated severe mental illness, mostly schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders, the kind of folks who too often also end up homeless, addicted, and incarcerated. Under care court, a wide range of people, parents, friends, clinicians, and first responders, can petition the court that a person needs help. If the judge agrees, he or she can order a care plan that counties must fund. The plans would be individualized, but would likely include clinical treatment, bridge housing, and other support. As the state's Health and Human Services Department puts it, the goal is to give the ill person the tools they need to make self-directed choices to the greatest extent possible. But it's that kind of language that some advocates say shows the program is really coercion masquerading as care. Care court, as it's written right now, is unconstitutionally vague and it violates the civil rights of our clients with mental health disabilities who are homeless. Christian Abasto is legal director of Disability Rights California. They're part of a coalition that is sued to stop the program and to get clarity, especially about what will happen to people who fail to follow through on their court-ordered treatment plans. Californians are so fed up with homelessness, it's home to nearly one-third of the nation's homeless, that Abasto worries the program will end up pushing many people into involuntary treatment, what he sees as a backdoor attempt to expand conservatorship, where ill people risk losing self-determination. It empowers parents, police, school persons to basically make an accusation and, and invoke the court system with potential confinement and potential infringement of the civil rights of people with mental health disabilities when they have done nothing wrong. Instead of funding new courts, the coalition wants the state to dramatically boost funding for existing treatment and housing for homeless persons with severe mental illness. Proponents, including the governor, counter that any potential penalties for not complying with a care plan are being wildly exaggerated. The program hasn't even gotten off the ground. I think it's terribly frustrating and heartbreaking for a lot of these families. Dr. Lisa Wong is director of Los Angeles County's Department of Mental Health, the largest county launching a care court pilot. 
L.A. and other counties going first stress that outreach by social workers will be key to getting people to participate voluntarily so they don't end up in court. But even if a case does, Dr. Wong says, it's still a voluntary service. You know, we're not holding people against their will. There's no involuntary medication order or anything like that. So people still have the ability to say no. And many parents, including Diana Burdick, say the care court experiment will surely be better than watching their loved ones cycle endlessly between crisis police holds, emergency rooms, jails, and homeless shelters. What we're doing now is telling my son it's okay to kill himself. He can stay on the streets and he can die there, but he's going to die with his rights. The only rights I have as a mother is to go claim him in the morgue. Diana says sometimes when she drops off food or clothes to Michael, a light seems to turn on and he calls her mom. But much of the time, she says, she's just Diana, who controls that imaginary trust fund with Bill Clinton, and she has to just drive away. So after a while, you kind of have to laugh about it, but then you cry about it because it's such a sad waste of our emotions, our time, and his life. He, he doesn't, what kind of a life does he have? You know, and when you put yourself in those, in, in those shoes, then it's very hard to, to function and to, uh, well, to sleep. Maybe with care court, her son will finally get a diagnosis and the medical help she's been trying to get for him for so long. There isn't anything that I've been able to do. I mean, I've got a book here on all and all these uh, notes that I have taken and time that I have taken to try to help him. And this is the first time that now I feel like I'm hopeful. Hopeful for her own son and that there's a chance, she says, to save other families from going through some of the pain we have. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Sacramento. The next few nights, five planets will line up in the sky. Astronomer Erica Grundstrom of Vanderbilt University told us to look to the western horizon just after sunset. And if you can find Jupiter, which will be quite bright, you'll be able to find Mercury, but you might need binoculars. Keep scanning up to find Venus. It's brighter than anything in the sky besides the sun and the moon. And right next to Venus you can see Uranus, and it will look slightly greenish. That's one of the awesome things about Uranus. You might need binoculars for that one, too. Then above that, the crescent moon and orangish Mars. Grunstrom pointed out there's no cosmic significance to all this. One of my friends likened it to looking at a car's odometer and seeing that they're all fours, or they're all fives. But it is a chance to marvel at our neighboring worlds. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopian. Straight ahead at 6.30, it's Marketplace. It's been nearly six years since New England Patriots star Aaron Hernandez killed himself in prison. Tomorrow morning, hear his final phone calls for the first time on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, we've got some rain and light snow in parts of the area tonight, about 36 degrees for a low. Tomorrow could start with a mix of snow and drizzle. Should be just plain rain by the afternoon. Right now in Boston, 46 degrees with clouds. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone Lexington, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club. WaterstoneLexington.com and Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, April 6th to 16th, bostonballet.org.